And we are back with another episode of the How To Business Show. This week, we're joined by returning guest, Stephanie Gillison. As a successful broker and developer, she's a titan in the Louisville real estate market. To no one's surprise, Stephanie has expanded her business and is now doing deals across the globe. Ambitious, gritty, and authentic, she takes us through her plan for expansion, highlighting just where exactly the opportunities are in the real estate industry. And we even get into a cautionary tale about the importance of never running out of cash as a developer. Stephanie's tenacious and straightforward approach to problem solving is contagious to say the least. After listening, you'll think differently about the problems you are facing right now. So let's jump into the episode. Stephanie Gillison, once again, thank you for coming on the first time. I believe that was the beginning of 2022. What have you been up to since then? Oh my God, what have I not been up to? Uh, working with you guys, right? I think since then, God, the beginning of 2022, that that was, you, I've got two developments. Maybe touch on the biggest, most exciting deal that's happened since then. I think for us, what's been extremely exciting is that our team has grown exponentially, right? We've gone from doing business in maybe a handful of states to we currently have listings in 41 states in four different countries. And I think that's really cool because you think about business being local. How many people do you have on this show that are local to a certain market? Especially when you talk to real estate professionals. They're worried about mastering a zip code. We're worried about mastering the globe. And that is a totally different outlook as you speak to other individuals and everyone always says when you get into real estate you gotta pick a farm area right for those going what the heck's a farm area well in real estate you pick the neighborhood or the area of town or the zip code that you want to do business in and that's what you market to that's the people you go knock on the doors to those are the businesses you walk into For us, we're trying to knock on the entire globe, and that's a bit challenging as we're trying to build that market brand because our audience and our potential clients are everywhere. But also, that's a wonderful thing because we can do so much more business that way. I think for me, you always, in in my past real estate, 24 years in the business, we always had to be extremely concerned about what is the market in Louisville, Kentucky. Well, I like now that our business is recession proof because we can move. We, we are in multiple markets. We can be in multiple countries and we're doing that all utilizing computers. It's not like we're flying all over the world. We do travel, but we're selling businesses and real estate from Louisville, Kentucky. We're working on a deal right now in Seattle, Washington. Who the hell reaches out to some girl in Louisville, Kentucky to do a $40 million deal in Seattle, Washington. Well, yeah. I can say me now, right? And it's it seems probably 15 years ago, the whole model of real estate, whether it's residential or commercial, as you focus on those segments, whether that be inside your city or inside your state, when how is how are we able to do what we do because of EXP commercials portability, but also... When did that kind of change? Like when was the first time you were able to do a deal outside of your core market? Uh, As soon as we 
merged prior to EXP. I owned an independent brokerage. We were local to Kentucky. Obviously, we were licensed in Kentucky. We could service the entire state of Kentucky, but we always limited ourselves to what's drivable, what's comfortable, right? And now I think being able to open a brokerage in all 50 states and people are like, well, there's a lot of brokerages in all 50 states. Well, no, there's not. There, there might be a common name, but that common name is a franchise and the individualized offices are independently owned and operated companies, brokerages. And so they can't do license portability the way EXP can. License portability came about in 2006. It's been around that long. Very few people, when I, especially in real estate, licensed real estate professionals have no idea what I say when, or when I say license portability, they're like, what is that? They've never heard of it. They've never been guided in that direction. But license portability, if you're affiliated with a brokerage that is open in a specific market or specific state, you as an agent can do business if that broker of record is willing to sponsor your transaction. And so we can do that at eXp. And so as soon as I was learning all 50 states, what it took to get the brokerage open in each of those states, I started learning what their laws were as it related to license portability. There's seven states that say, no, we're turf states, you must hold a license. Seven states out of 50. So that means, and one of those seven states happens to be Kentucky. So we've got that covered, right? So that leaves the entire territory open. And one of the big reasons why we've been able to scale is because we're able to go into those other markets. When a publicly traded company or a corporation comes to us and we do a great job for them, and then they find out, wait, you can help us in uh, Texas, you can help us in Arizona, you can help us in California. Well, people do business with people they trust. We earned the trust. Now we're building their businesses right along with them as we spread out in all these different markets. And so that's the opportunity. I would never go back to being with a firm that didn't afford us that opportunity because it's our business would go away. And those people, especially in commercial real estate, that are with firms that limit them on their territorial right, they're missing out. And I think the main difference to highlight there is that EXP commercial, it's more about collaboration. And you would think like with Cushman and Wakefield and CBRE, it's a lot about that collaboration as well. But because they have these territories, when it comes to referring business or going into other Cushman and Wakefields or CBRE's territories, you're it feels more like stepping on toes in competition side of things rather than collaborate. Let's all have a piece of the pie. Would that, is that true? 100%. I've spoken to commercial brokers all over this country because they're curious about how are we doing what we're doing, especially EXP commercial. And my big question to them is, number one, well, okay, does your brokerage put you in a lane? Meaning, do they make you focus on one asset class? Usually the answer is yes right? So then I say, well, okay, so you're the multifamily guy in your office. So can you do a multifamily deal in Las Vegas, Nevada? Oh no, that territory is owned by a different NAI Global or, or whatever the company is. And I'm like, what? You're giving up majority of your money. 
you're limited on your asset class. Hey, look, people argue with me all the time. They say commercial real estate, you should choose an asset class. Well, you know what? I did choose an asset class. My asset class is money. It's what it, that's what I want to do is make money. And my clients are wanting to make money, right? And so if it pencils, it's a deal. So I'm not going to be forced into a lane. I'm not going to limit my ability to earn money. But more importantly, I'm not going to be forced into a territory. When the license law and license portability is a real thing and it's perfectly legal, I'm going to be with the brokerage that affords me the right to be able to do that without having to give away a referral, without having to co-broker with a local agent to that market. Now, am I going to do tenant rep in Phoenix, Arizona? Probably not. I need to refer that off to the local guy or gal in the business that understands that market. But as it relates to what we're doing, selling massive franchises, portfolios, manufacturing, hotels, whatever the case might be, the globe is our territory. Boom. So you've set yourself up perfectly to be able to pivot your business to match what the market does. Whereas using your example, the Cushman Wakefield multifamily Louisville guy of multifamily in Louisville is taking a huge hit. He's SOL, right? Yeah. So you have the ability to pivot to bigger, better opportunities. Where are you pivoting right now? Where are you seeing the opportunities in today's market? Right now, I love focusing on, I'm a problem solver. I love to solve problems. And so I like to reach out to those people who have a very big issue. And that is, they've got a loan coming due. And when they go back to talk to that lender and or try to shop around that loan to somebody else, they're going to have to have a lot more cash, a lot more equity. But more importantly, they've got to figure out what that interest rate's going to end up being because it's not going to be the 3% that they got five years ago or whatever year it was. It's going to drastically increase. Is that property worth, is it still going to pencil at that higher interest rate, right? Uh, and if they can even get a loan. There's a lot of people with a lot of cash. Those are still great sellable assets. And so I like reaching out to solve the problem. It's not me reaching out to get the listing as much as it is, okay, here's a problem. Obviously, we know this. It's public record. What is your plan? And listening to their plan. Can we put them into financing that'll work? Okay, let's try. If not, then selling it is the next way to go. It, it shocks me how many hotels that we've brought to market and cash buyers ready to go paying over what market value is. And so this is a good problem solution for these owners. Yeah, that's a great, there's different problems to hire up the rung you go. Some people have so much money, they need something to invest in. They have an obligation to their investors. They have to have that return. So they're dying for great opportunities. And those kinds of people are always out there. That's right. And, and so, Oh, Go ahead. Well, I was going to pivot, but you do wear two hats, real estate broker, but also a real estate developer. If you had to pick one hat to wear at this point in your life, which one would it be? Oh, that, I can't pick one because <laughs> I love them both equally. I would probably be forced to pick the real estate broker hat only because I know I can always do a deal and I know I'm always going to have income, right? I know that's going to be, I'm a grinder, right? Number one, 
Number one, it's not about being the smartest person. It's not about knowing every single thing. But if you got grit and you know how to grind, you can make a living, right? So I will always have that. I would love to pick the real estate developer, but to find those deals, it's a lot of energy. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of commitment. I have no problem doing that, but I like to fill me sitting around and waiting for opportunities. I get really bored. So that's where I fill my time doing deals, solving problems for others. And then the deal comes along and I'm able to see it through. But yeah, I think I would have to choose real estate broker because I can't sit still long enough. (laughs) When that one deal does come along, the breakers project, for example, and then it goes to the council meetings and then it's a long drawn out process. I imagine that can be frustrating when it takes that long of a time. But could you walk us through the ups, the downs of that entire project where it's at now? Absolutely. So so the breakers, it was this 50 acre piece. And for those around Louisville would understand this, but it was the last 50 acres in Jefferson County in residential high-end neighborhoods, the last 50 acres between a high-end neighborhood and the Ohio River. And it was a property that I was watching for quite some time. It was an operating uh, boarding and horse farm. It had started out in 1858 with over 3,500 acres, and slowly uh, over time, parts of it were sold off in large chunks, and they got developed. Well, this last 50 acres had the original house on it, built in 1858. Uh, A very cool story about that. I'm the fifth owner of that house, which I find amazing because you do the math of the age of that home, and I'm the fifth owner. It's pretty shocking. The couple that owned that house, they raised their family there. He was an amazing doctor here in town, and I saw that he passed away. Property was not for sale. I waited about three days, and I picked up the phone, and I called her. And I said, Mrs. McCall, this is Stephanie Gillison. She goes, I know who you are. You're the real estate lady. I said, yes, I am. She said, I'm not listing my property. I said, I'm not calling to list your property. I want to buy it. And she paused. She goes, Okay. I said, when can you meet me? She goes, one o'clock today. So I said, yes. I had something else on my calendar. I always had packed days, but that was highly important. That was the opportunity. Didn't tell anybody. I went there, had a great conversation with her. We settled on what I was going to do with the property. I was very honest with her. I said, look, I will keep this prop, this house, The house was the heart of the entire thing. Built in 1858, looked like it could have come out of Savannah, Georgia, but also it looked like it could have come out of the New England market. Sitting right there on the Ohio River, and I said, whatever I do, I will make sure this house stays intact and that it's protected, that it will always be intact. And But I'm going to develop it into a high-end luxury neighborhood. And I'm going to do it the best I can because I'm going to move here. And so that to her was important. I wasn't just this builder going to come in, develop it, and then sell everything off, cheapen it, whatever. And uh, that was important to me to live there. And so I immediately worked with uh, Sayback Wilson and Lingo, my engineering firm. We laid it all out. And before I knew it, it had gotten out to the press. And so I started getting all these phone calls. What's this breakers? What's this breakers? And I said, look, I don't even have (laughs) my application in yet to planning and zoning. I don't even have pricing yet. 
That was December 2nd of 2018. And by December 30th, New Year's Eve, I had pre-sold 63 lots. And it was only 69. And so that, I was like, man, I got a slam dunk here. So then we filed the applications, went through everything, and then there's always people that are anti-development for whatever reason. And we had to host the first neighborhood meeting. So when you do a development, you're not asking permission, you're just presenting your idea to the community that surrounds it. And doesn't mean they touch the property. It's just out to the public and the community could be somebody that lives 35 miles away, but they're part of the community. And so that neighborhood meeting actually, uh, they couldn't fit everybody in the neighborhood meeting. There were hundreds of people that turned out and that was just my presentation of what I planned on doing and so forth. There was a lot of people that absolutely said, no, it should be a park. It should be this. It should be that. You're always going to have objection. But I knew I had 63 people that wanted to live there. So I'm going to keep going. And because the property, the house on it was built in 1858, the, the naysayers and the people that did not want to see it developed called the historical people out of Washington, D.C. They brought anything they could possibly bring to me to stop this development. So I was forced to do an archaeological dig on the entire 50 acres, literally people out in the field, hand digging, going so far deep to verify and make sure that there wasn't an Indian burial ground or anything. And so that was a cost that I hadn't planned on in the beginning, but it was okay. It all worked out. We passed through that. Then we had wetlands to deal with, and we were also near the Ohio River. And so I had to go through permitting with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which is a federal process, which is not easy. And those are the people and the organizations and the departments that make sure that you've got to do all these environmental studies as it relates to wildlife, as it relates to protected species. And so There was a gentleman that, I'm being nice today, I called him a gentleman, but really I gave him a different name at the time. But anyway, he kept saying there were wood ducks on the property and they're protected species. And I'm like, what the heck's a wood duck? So I'm (laughs) looking up, what the heck does a wood duck look like, right? And uh, there was no wood ducks. There was no spotted owls. There was no eagles. There was nothing. We got through every bit of that. There were no endangered species. So won that one. Then... All these historical people were trying to get it stopped. And and because of these wetlands, it made it very difficult for us to develop. We actually had to bore under these wetlands. That was the entire plan. And because of that, there's very few people that specialize in that. But we could not disturb these wetlands. Well, as much as we may or may not like the man, Trump wins the election And one of the first things he did, for whatever reason, was he suspended the inland wetlands. So my property doesn't touch the Ohio River. There's another conservation area in between. And because these wetlands didn't do anything, we were able to just get rid of them. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's something happened. Somebody's looking over me because... 
The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers at that point said, you don't need a permit from us. You can move forward. You can just go on about your day. And I'm like, is this a dream? Am I pinching myself? It was just so relieving that I could get rid of all that. So the historical people couldn't come after me. The green space people, all these people were shot down. Well, then the neighboring subdivision, Sutherland, decided that they had drainage issues. Not because of me. I hadn't even developed yet, you all. I hadn't even bought the property yet, okay? I'm still in my due diligence phase. And all their flooding is my problem. And I'm like, how in the hell do I put a contract on a piece of land and all of a sudden now I'm responsible for 400 homes getting water in their basement, right? So then MSD got scared and said, you can't run your drainage this way. You got to get a different plan. And I'm like, okay, what's the plan? Well, we're going to need on-site retention. Okay, well, what does, how big does it need to be? Well, it needs to be two acres. There was already an existing two-and-a-half-acre pond that was spring-fed, and we knew that because even in the going back 100 years on aerial photos, the pond never was dry. And as much as we didn't have rain, it never lowered in the water level. And so we knew it was spring-fed, so that couldn't be counted as on-site detention. So that meant we had to build our own. And they said, well, we can build a lake. I said, okay, how big does it need to be? They said, two acres. I said, what if we times it by one and a half? They go, well, that'll be a four and a half acre lake, and you'll have to lose nine lots. And I said, okay. So I only had 69 to begin with. I was keeping one. I'd already had deposits to people for 63. And so I looked at my list of people, And then I looked at the area of where that lake needed to go. And I said, I'm sorry, I got to give you your money back because I'm putting a lake in. And so now the community is only 62. So, or I'm sorry, uh, 60. So then they said, well, you still got to hook into drainage. You still got to hook into additional drainage to get this drainage straight out to the river. Well, I had an easement going through the conservation land. I offered them 200000 to expand the easement because it wasn't big enough for the pipe. Of course, they didn't want the development. They said no. Offered $500,000. They said no. Offered $1.2 million, and they said no. Back downtown, West Jefferson Street, and I say, Pat, with Sayback Wilson and Lingo, there's got to be another way. He goes, well, if you could get to this drainage pipe right over here, there's only 12 houses on it already. It's way oversized, and it goes straight to the river. So well, what do I need to do? And he said, 7602 Indicott. You need to go to them and get an easement. I said, okay. So I went to that house. I knocked on the door. This guy comes to the door. He's originally from Ireland. So in this Irish accent, he goes, how can I help you? And I said, I need to have a sit-down conversation with you, sir, but it's, I'm going to make your day. I promise I'm going to make your day. He said, okay, come on in. He calls his wife down. We sit at his kitchen table, and I said, look, I need an easement to come through your yard. It's going to be underground. You'll never know this pipe is here. It's not going to change the surface at all. And even when we put it in the ground, we're going to bore it so we don't even have to dig it up. Nobody's even going to know. And for that, I'm going to give you $50,000. 
wow, really? This sounds amazing. Okay, well, let us sleep on it. Next morning, he calls me up and he says, I can't do that. I know what you're trying to do. And you're that development back there because it backed up to the breakers. He said, if I do that, all of my neighbors that hate you for bringing in this development are going to make my life a living hell and I got to live with them. I said, sir, I noticed that house is about 7,000 square feet and it's you and your wife. I didn't, I think your kids are gone, right? He goes, oh yeah, they're grown, they're grown. One is Chicago, one is in Nashville, and one was, I forget, somewhere else. Oh, the Nashville one just had a baby. I said, isn't it about time that you go and be with your grandkid? Well, you saw our house, it needs a lot of work, and it did. It was built in 2000, they lived in it, They lived in it hard, and they never updated it. They built it for $650,000 in 2000. They moved in 2001. Only owners looked exactly the same. Original roof, original HVAC, original everything. I said, how about you go move and be with your grandbaby? I'm going to give you $650,000 cash this afternoon. I'm going to buy your house. I'm going to let you live here for free, no rent, the next six months. But I'm going to run my pipe as soon as I own this house. He said, okay. And we did. I called up my title company. I called up Beth. I said, Beth, I need you to pull title. We're closing this today. I'm going to the bank. I'm going to bring the cash or wire the cash. We're closing on this house. And so we closed on the house the very next morning. In the dark, we bored that pipe, we hooked into the sewer. We had MSD, Metropolitan Sewers District, full-blown permission. At 3 p.m., Sutherland filed an injunction that said that they we could not run the pipe. My attorney goes in and said, we're not doing it in the future. It's already done. And we got approved. That's awesome. <laughs> So, yes, development, it was a trying, it was trying, but there's always a way. You know, what that, it's relentless, right? You got to be relentless. There's always a way. The moral to that story is, thank God I had the cash. Yeah. <laughs> because if I didn't have the cash, that wouldn't have happened. And so a lot of agents or people will come to me and they said, we want to be like you when we go into development. And the first thing I ask them, and sometimes it's offensive to them, but it's truthful. Do you have the cash? Because you have to have incidental money. There was no time for me to buy that house, go get a mortgage, and wait 45 days to close. you got to have the cash. It wouldn't have worked if you had to wait. It wouldn't have worked. I would have never had the breakers. The breakers has turned into, it's a gated community. The houses in there are $2 million on up to $7.8 million. It's some of the most expensive real estate in all of Louisville, and it's genius. Is there as much red tape and issues with your second development in Indiana across the river? No. So when you are an adult and you start to have kids, they always say your first one's your easiest. But by the time the second one rolls around, it's hell. Well, in the development world, I was blessed with the hardest damn development with Everything I faced that by the time I did Noblewood over in Indiana, I'm like, is this like what? Like It was the total opposite. It's all the politics, right? 
there was no neighborhood meeting. There was a city council meeting. I went in with my engineer and my layout, and I said, this is what we're going to do. They asked me two questions, and they said, we want this. They signed off on it, and I said, okay, where do I go to get my permits? They go, we just gave it to you, and we got started. So it was the exact opposite. I'll never have another one that easy, I know. So I went from one extreme to the other in the course of 18 months uh, of one another. And I think it's important to note these are two developments in separate states that can actually see each other. Yeah, on both sides of the river. So they're on either side of the river as a visual. But one, for listeners outside of Louisville and Kentucky, one is in an area that's pretty been developed. It's it's reaching its boundaries in terms of development. There's a lot of farms and neighborhoods already built. There's not much room for growth. Whereas across the river in Indiana, that's a market that's developing. It's starting to get bigger. So thinking about how hard it was to go into this market that's already hot, it's doing well, but it's reaching its capacity in a market that's going to be hot one day. Which would you recommend for starting or in development? Is it better to go to Utica or Prospect? I think it goes back to the money. Prospect was a $6.1 million land purchase for 50 acres and a house. But Utica was a $2 million land purchase for 100 acres, double Mm. the size, right? But $4 million less. So a huge difference in price. So it's always going to go back to money. But also, too, Utica, the Noblewood, is the long game, right? I didn't pre-sell 40 or 60 or I couldn't do that there because we're proving a concept. The challenge for Noblewood, which is probably why I was drawn to it, is that town found us and asked us to come over there and do it. And we had just had the new bridge completed to get there. If there that bridge wasn't built, I would have never looked at that property because it was too hard to get to that area of Indiana. But now with the new bridge, it's very close. I can be there in seven minutes. So that, though, is the longer play. It's a bigger community. We're building patio homes and single-family homes, but it's also a less expensive price point than the Breakers, too. We're not doing $2 million-plus houses in Noblewood. We're starting at the six fifty dollars and going up from there. It's going to do well. Uh, there's so much growth in that area. There's so much industry coming to that area. I wish we could find out who this big tech company that was is coming in. They bought 600 acres. It's going to be some massive campus. So, but... You're right there at River Ridge, which millions of square feet of industrial, and it's all filled. Elizabethtown might be next for your next development. There you go. Do you have an area for your next development, or are you still waiting? No, I'm, it's, I haven't found, I'm always looking as it relates close to me in certain areas, but the deals that are outside of where I am every single day, people usually bring to me. So if anybody's got something great, bring it to me because we are looking for what is next. E-Town is a little bit far of a distance for our crews, but it's not a no, that's for sure. Well, what's the one factor or the most important thing you look at when somebody does bring you a deal? I, I run an entire performer, just like a commercial property owner needs evaluation, just like you guys are are doing valuations on businesses that we sell. I run an entire performa on 
Here's the land cost. What's the cost per lot to develop? How many lots can I get? What is my hold time? What are my engineering costs? I'm making an entire spreadsheet. And then I look at the market conditions. What's the highest and best use for that property? Whether it's residential, multifamily, maybe it is commercial. But I'm looking at all of that and then I'm working backward. And if I can't double my investment, it's not even worth it to me because there's too much risk that you can't calculate for, right? There's just too much risk. Just like the $650,000 house buy. Now, I did sell that house for six fifty, dollars so I got my easement for free. I, that was a, a part of that story we totally missed. Remember, I offered $1.2 million through mm-hmm. the conservation land. But it's things like that you don't know, and experience is what gets there. I didn't learn to develop from being in development, I learned to develop because most of my real estate career, that's who I worked with, were developers looking for the next project in all areas of real estate. It could be office buildings to industrial, you name it, we did it. But that's exactly how I would run those numbers. It's got a pencil. So And then that's going to tell us what the ultimate land purchase price needs to be. There people have brought me things and I'm like, it's too expensive. And, and then I show them, I work the numbers with them and show them why, like E-Town, for example, currently, if we were to get a piece of land and let's say the necessary need was just single family housing, which it will be because of all the workforce that's being moved there. But we still have to look at what is that workforce? What is their income? What can they afford? I'm not going to go down there for a battery factory where the average person, and I don't know this, I haven't looked at it high enough, but let's say the average employee is making 75 grand a year. Well, I can't go down there and build $2 million houses. I have no market. So I have to look at what that market is so that it justifies out. That's where our team especially and why residential, commercial, and business are so important because we can stay on top of the... Because look, housing, there's a shortage everywhere. There still is. Inventory is still extremely low. It may not be that everywhere, but in majority of the markets, that's what you're reading. There's just not enough places to live. Yeah. I think a good example is a, a house that you and Tanner went to go look at, ended up selling for nine fifty. Way over what it was worth. Yeah. And is that something that you're seeing? Back in 2008, when your career took off, Cal, Tanner, and I were pretty young, and a lot of our listeners are probably pretty young too. But thinking about back then and now and how houses are still selling way above market today because we're so short on supply. But back then, we had an excess supply and everything was still selling above market Is there any similarity today? Does it feel the same? How does it compare? Oh, I think think that here soon we're going to start. 2008 was a very different market. People overpaid because in 5, 6, and 7, if you had a driver's license or some form of ID, you got a, a mortgage, right? Which that put the entire financial market into a spin and then you had a whole lot of people that couldn't afford to pay that mortgage and they had overpaid for their house so therefore they owed more on it than it was worth that happened that hit florida 
I think in 2006 is when it started hitting in Florida. And I actually was interviewed for WOKY. Channel 32 came to my office to interview me on what I thought was going to happen in the Louisville market. Because in the Midwest, we're protected, right? Things happen here a little bit later. And by the time they happen, it just blows over and we experienced it, but we didn't really live it. We actually did live that one. I think everybody lived that one. I was doing asset liquidations for seven regional banks and a national bank. I sold over 96 developments that either had gotten started and not finished or the land was bought, the concept drawings were there, the permits were approved and issued, but they then had to shut them down so they never built the first thing. You name it. We had every type of anything. And so... Again, it went back to highest and best use, and we had to figure out, okay, if this is a condominium project that's going to have 400 condos where you're going to sell the condos and they're three stories high, condos, we don't have a market for that right now. So we just rezoned them all multifamily and made some of the best apartment complexes throughout Louisville. So I think we're coming back to some of that because there's going to be a crunch, and it's not about... it's. People are too leveraged. Not everybody. There's some that aren't leveraged at all. And then there are people too leveraged. And what we haven't been able to control over the last few years is the supply chain, right? We've had to sit and wait. And as we've sat and wait, our interest rates have gone up. A commercial Went loan, up again today. a development loan, none of that stuff's locked in. Not forever. It's going to float with prime. And so when does it begin to, how many people, and my my father, your papa says this all the time, keep your cash, hoard your cash. And so, hey, there's my advice, hoard your cash. You do need to hoard your cash because now we're getting upon the time of opportunity. And that's what I saw in 2008. You said that's when my career took off. No, my career had already taken off, but that's when my financial mind opened up wide open. I had sold thousands of properties by the time 2008 had rolled around. And what I saw was an opportunity. And that's what I see coming up is the opportunity. That's why I haven't raced to go out and buy my next place, my next development, my next whatever. The opportunity is going to hit a smack dab in the face and I'm glad I got the money to spend. I saw someone talking about the current market and there was going to be three outcomes. We're either going to have the buying opportunity of the decade, the buying opportunity of the next couple of decades, or the buying opportunity of a lifetime. Or lifetime, there you go. And that's the three paths from where we sit today that the market could go because a great example of that is the Fifth Third building in Louisville sold for $9 million. Yeah. Would you... If someone told you you could develop a skyscraper for $9 million, would you do it? <laughs> Not anymore. But do you think there's going to be more situate? Because the it's weird market right now because there are asset classes like office space that are hurting really bad. But then industrial space right now is hot because there's such little supply. Well, and this is interesting, and I'm going to give kudos to a guest that I had on my CRE Power Hour earlier today that aired. She's in the consulting business out of Dallas, Texas, and she consults with businesses that are typically either 
they're merging multiple businesses together and we're talking large companies. And one of the things that these companies are having to do is how to entice their employees to come back to work so that they can utilize the square footage they're responsible for. And so she has consulted on numerous things. They're putting in pickleball courts. They're putting in all, and I'm, and my exact response for anybody that watches that show on YouTube will see me go, well, when do they work if they got all this fun stuff? Really? Like, when do they work? And But then it made me think about something. Obviously, they're encouraging break time, and when they're doing... I don't know, community building inside of that. But think about that. How can you install pickleball courts in a high rise? How can you make all these cool spread out games and have these sessions that entice your employees to be there in a high rise? So industrial's not only winning because of all the manufacturing that's necessary. Industrial buildings are winning because offices and companies or they're wanting those to be their offices. It's a whole lot easier to build an environment on one level than it would be to go up with it, right? And it's either that or the landlord is going to have to figure out which floors is he or she giving up to make them common area spaces so that the other tenants in the building can rent out or not rent, but secure whatever time window to have the employees come down and play pickleball, right? And we're just picking pickleball, guys, but it's a number of things like that. But that's what makes you think of, okay, well, what is going to happen there? So you've got a twofold with that. So we just met a client uh, out of Cleveland, Ohio. He drove down to Louisville to meet us last week to talk about all kinds of opportunities. He just purchased... 480,000 square foot warehouse that was on the verge of teardown. He said, let me show you my ugly baby because it's ugly right now. But he's going to go through a phased conversion of this property. His company, the big bulk of it is a call center. And he's moving out of that high rise that he has multiple different floors and it's very difficult to maneuver. And he is phasing this building where the next eight months, he's going to get this much square footage done, move the people. Then they're going to have their event space. They're going to have the education area. They're going to pretty much everything. But he's also then reaching out to his, I, I don't know if it's suppliers or just, other companies that he does a lot of business with, and he's moving them into the space and creating that same experience for them. So it's going to, it's turning a warehouse into an office essentially, or offices. That's what he's doing. That's very interesting. Yeah. We had a meeting with someone who owns a lot of underground warehouse space, and I learned that there were offices down. Yeah. Just thought that was a very strange place, but it makes sense because in a warehouse, you can do almost anything you want and you could almost build it to where these like offices could be drug around. Exactly. You can maneuver. You have a bigger format to expand, right? There, There's so many. It, he showed it to me and it is. It's already happened. And I've seen several concepts like that, but that's one of the things that it, it's, I don't think it's even going to be a trend. I think it's going to be the way of the future as companies want to bring their employees back to work. And we experienced this with uh, one of our listings that would be considered flex space, Warwick, that I feel like 
with Warwick, it was we listed it as office space, flex space, and you'd think, okay, based on our conversation, office space is hurting, but this space was unique. It was flex space. It had a little warehouse on it. It was very versatile, and I feel like that type of real estate that's not just industrial warehouse, not just bland office space is what's really thriving right now because businesses especially small businesses need office space and little warehouses. And if you can fit it into one spot, even better. That's right. With a lot of the trends in real estate, probably when you were a kid, real estate wasn't as creative as it is today. What kind of trends are you following or excited about? Like modular homes, shipping container, things like that. I'm going to talk, I'm going to go forward on that shipping container thing. Cause I saw something yesterday on a listing. We have not brought this to market yet, but we will be bringing it to market. And I love this concept because what he did with these shipping containers is he's made a complete, when you go to a festival and you see all the food trucks going around. So this guy has taken shipping containers and turned them into what you would think is like a food court concept. And each one is a little bit, it is the coolest thing. I cannot wait to bring this property to market. Yeah. And so you can do so much with the modular construction. I actually represent a company that builds modular apartment buildings. And the price per square foot, we get on a call with this developer builder out of California who's buying some property in Texas and looking at a piece of property that we have listed in Texas. And we send him the performa of exactly what that cost per square foot is to build. And he wants to get on the call and debate. And he said, it's 613 a square foot. I've done this with the top builders like this is modular construction and we're showing him the renderings of it and he is nobody will accept modular construction why not this stuff it's not a it's not like we're pulling up a trailer on the back of our station wagon and telling you to live in it this is some state-of-the-art and when you look at and I don't want to go this direction but I'm going to say it because I think it is important when you look at the carbon emissions that come out of the modular construction it's zero right? Versus what is existing out there. And so there's a lot of benefits to that, but it's also the time that you can build it. We're talking these units will be extremely luxury, but they can be built in 60 days versus 16 months. It's wild to think about. I think with the modular side of stuff, in a way you can make it super bougie, so to say, very nice on the inside, but it's just a tiny house. At the end of the day, there's a lot of people that could afford small and luxury, but there's not a bunch of people who can afford big and luxury. It it allows you to tap into kind of the lower middle market, which is not one you can usually hit in real estate development. No, it's Unless you're doing affordable housing. No, it's too hard. The materials have not gone down. It's too expensive. Like I think... The people that could afford that are the ones renting and mm-hmm. it's a way, maybe a way someone who's looking to get in development could look into the modular side because the market that would buy it is large and mostly renting. What other things in Louisville's real estate market are you excited about besides your developments? Anything? Here in Louisville, we have always had some great companies. UPS is huge here. Ford is huge here. 
BE's here. There's a lot of different people don't realize how much is here in Kentucky, Toyota, all the bourbon, the loosening of where you can place distilleries. That's become huge. Some of our rural parts of Kentucky are now known because of the bourbon trail and all the distilleries that are popping up. I want to see some improvement with downtown. I tried years ago to get involved in assisting and offering up some solutions. And maybe now the the new uh, political reign will have some ears. There's a lot that we can do. We need to figure out how to get people back downtown. We solved that in in the early 2000s. People were down here. And now it's a little bit drying up. Mm-hmm. So that needs to be solved again. There's some really cool concepts, but I think that there's a lot of opportunity here in Louisville to look at. How would you solve it? Well, first off, people want to live where it's convenient, right? So what I would do with some of these empty spaces down here is one, get the convenience factor in. We need a grocery store, number one. There's no grocery store in downtown Louisville, right? So who the heck wants to run to the East End to get milk? I don't. So that's going to be the solution right there. But also transforming some of this space. It's such a What cities are going to have to do is what we did in 2009, which was get rid of the red tape. Make it easy to go through the zoning process. I'm not saying let anybody do anything. That's not what I'm saying. They still need to go through that process. But instead of it taking 18 months or two years, we need to do the rocket docket again. In 2009-10, there was the rocket docket. It was genius. They guaranteed you six months from start to finish. People could get shit done. And so we need to go back to that. Crime's always an issue, but I think, too, with the vacancies is what attracts the crime, right? If people are flourishing and people are down here, well, then the police are hanging out more because there's people to pay attention to, and it seems like the crime goes away, possibly. I don't know, but it, it seemed to work before. The... My whole thing of why I got into development was to give the custom home builders a place to build, Right? We have seen, and I'm sure a lot of markets have seen, the massive track builders come in, put a bunch of stuff up, have four houses to choose from, and everything looks like the set off of The Truman Show <laughs> or Edward Scissorhands. Remember those movies? You all yes. are too young for those. I but, no, I know. <laughs> no, I love that custom component. I love for those to happen. But the only way those happen is if it's easier to get through it, Right. It's so easy to get your time wasted and interest to escalate on you and you run out of money before you get a project approved. So I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's that would be what I would lobby for. The rocket docket. The yeah, rocket docket. It's the right name. Yeah, they need to do that. The rocket docket. One thing I enjoyed re-listening to that first ever How To Business episode was when you talked about how you're always reading and always learning what nowadays are you reading and trying to learn to stay ahead so i have been in a in an ai certification course i've got 12 more weeks (laughs) i think i've sat through nine already it is impressive Man, I wish I had that when I was in college, don't you guys? (laughs) We didn't have it in college. (laughs) I know, you didn't have it in college. No, but what I love about it is that it's not that I'm relying on it, 
but it's giving me another outlook. Without having that person to bounce an idea off of, I love the fact that I'm able to utilize that for a completely different outlook. I had to speak to about 1,300 real estate agents across the country, all different levels, right? All different specialties, residential, commercial, you name it. And I said, okay, what I want to speak about is, and I put in all the things that I wanted to do, write me a five-minute speech for video, and it shot it all out, and I read it, and I'm like, man, this is great. But it gave me, I don't read anything. I'm totally unscripted. If you gave me a set of lines, I would never follow them. I'd be fired in Hollywood. But it gave me a great set of guidelines and the right flow to follow so that I didn't skip around a lot. So I liked that. I like the fact that now I don't have to wait for, if I'm working on SEO for a certain landing page or website or whatever, we've got AI to depend on. I'm scared for a lot of the marketing and tech people that, you know, that that work to, to build those careers. But I do like the fact that we have those at our fingertips. I think that the real estate uh, agent and brokers that don't incorporate AI into their business in the next two years are dead. And they're going to go, what the hell is she talking about? But I think it's true. I think you need to start incorporating that. We can always do a better job for our clients. And so if you're not continuing to be innovative and you're not being agile and you're not moving with the trend, you're out of business. And so I am always reading about how to better my career. And the only way to better my career is to better what we do for our clients. And so that's what I'm paying attention to. I'm paying attention to the markets. I'm paying attention to businesses that are turning on financial times. And the first thing I look at is what do they own? But I'm always reading those sort of things. Uh, But technology, I'm reading about all the time. Because if we can incorporate it in our business and do better business, that's what it's all about. Boom. I like it. I think we're ready for the blitz round. We've started doing these, I think, on like episode 14 or 15. So you've never had one yet. Oh, God. So these are three rapid-fire questions we ask everyone. Usually we send them beforehand so they can think about them. You didn't send me anything. That's not fair. Nope, we didn't send you <laughs> Putting anything. you on the spot. That is not fair. But if business meetings had a walk-up song, what would yours be? So think of like when a baseball player comes up to bat, they're playing a song. Everybody's in a meeting room waiting on you. And a song flicks on. That's easy. So if everybody's waiting on me early on in my career, one of my clients said, I know why you're going to be successful because you're a bleeping lion. So there's not a song about a lion, but there is the eye of the tiger. (laughs) Boom. Boom. (laughs) And then what book or movie has had the biggest impact on your personal or professional life? Oh, gosh. Um, There's so many. Oh, man. The... There's probably not a movie on my professional life, I don't think, uh, other than I do uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Coffee's for closers. If you've never seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and you are a real estate agent, you need to watch it. Just YouTube the scene where Alec Baldwin, who's the team leader, is giving his pep talk and watch it and live it. Live it. Tanner showed us that in the office. Oh, yeah. Coffee is for closers. Look it up. And that was something that, because that movie was when I was a kid. 
I don't even know what year that movie was. But I will watch that over and over again. I'm not going to sit here and lie and say I'm tough as nails because, hey, we all have those weak moments. And when I'm at my weakest, when I feel like I am failing, I watch that and I freaking get up and go blow it out of the gate. I do it every time. I love that. That that So I will probably say that because that is the thing that I can quickly tune into at any moment. It's hard to pull out that book and mm. find that one line, but that Glengarry Glen Ross. I like coffee that. is for closers. Man, what is your go-to activity to decompress after a long uh, week? I or- love to play guitar. I actually have a stage in my basement, and I like to uh, play guitar. I like to sing. I like to relive the days that I worked my way through college as a musician, and dream and pretend and be a rock star. Unplug the microphone from the computer and plug it into the amp. I love it. I love it. You got it. I think in sales, I I used to do this uh, way back in the day. I quit doing it because I never wanted to be accused of anything. But when when agents, when I owned my own independent brokerage, and this is back in 2001, two, three, four, I don't know when we quit doing it, but they would say, I want to be a real estate agent. I'm like, well, Okay. And I had this little karaoke thing in the office, and I say, sing me a song. Because I figured if they could sing me a song without hesitation, I could teach them. I like it. That's hilarious. I like karaoke. (laughs) What's your go-to karaoke song? Oh, I have a million of them. And Sam, my husband, will tell you, oh, my God, I hate the one that she likes to sing. But I like Alanis Morissette's You Ought to Know. I can't remember that off the top of my head. I've heard you sing it. But yeah, this has been a great episode. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Hey guys, it's Cal here. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the How To Business Show. If you would like to stay up to date with upcoming episodes and what we're doing behind the scenes, make sure to follow us on social media. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and our website, www dot htb show.com finally if you have a story to share or some feedback for the show feel free to contact us at htbs at gillisanteam.com important links for today's episode can be found in the description from all of us on the how-to business team thank you for listening and see you next time <laughs>